It is July 28th, and it's a Wednesday, 11 a.m. here on the West Coast of the United States. My name is Arthur Asadurian. This is Apollo Gear Center, and we have a great show today, uh, lined up for today. And hey, it's the internet. This stuff gets saved. Maybe you're watching this 50 years later. I have no idea, uh, but we'll see what that's like. Um, let me introduce my guest right now. Um, and uh, Mike Austin is uh, Dr. Michael Austin, um, however you want to refer to him. Um, let me give a brief description of uh, his credentials and then we'll jump into some stuff he's worked on. And some of it's very interesting when you look at the sort of stuff philosophers work on. So I'm, I'm excited for this. Um, Dr. Austin has a BA in political science from Kansas State University. MA in philosophy from Biola University and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Colorado at Boulder. Have you done any work post-grad kind of stuff after that? I'm not sure. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> PhD almost killed me, so I'm glad I'm done. Okay, now you did your PhD on something, your dissertation was on parental rights and obligations. And this kind of yeah, falls... I guess this falls into the realm of ethics, which is where you spend a lot of time in. Um, and I think it's related to, to our subject. Uh, so what was, the, tell me about the dissertation, because that's interesting. What, what... Yeah, it was, I wanted to do something in bioethics and then the, the my advisor, or who I wanted to be my advisor, David Boonin, suggested some topics outside of that, and this is one of them. So I did a little reading, got interested in it, and it really is, it's mostly not about policy or politics. It's primarily about moral arguments. You know, what what grounds parental rights? What grounds parental obligations? Um, what are some of the implications of those things for, you know, educational choice, religious upbringing, things like that? So kind of a broad swath, but it's it was grounded in the dissertation. Is of course it's a dissertation for University of Colorado, so it's not explicitly Christian, but there's a there's sort of a, a Really, it's grounded in Trinity, the Trinity, I would argue, um, this idea that um, the rights are grounded in the nature of the relationships themselves, with uh, intimacy and love. And so I did like a shorter version of that book later, like a little more accessible uh, called Wise Stewards, because basically it's a stewardship conception of parenthood. And that, that's grounded in the fact that, you know, parents don't own their children, um, but they uh, are entrusted to care for them requires wisdom and I was, I was just talking to a friend recently about this that you know I wrote my parenthood dissertation and then my parenthood book for a Christian publisher 12 or 13 years ago and I've read someone once say so many Christian books on parenting or books about parenting are written by parents with young children <laughs> um, and then you realize later oh yeah I guess there's a lot of stuff I didn't know or oh. um, you know and that's okay but uh, that's good. There's, I still stand by most of that stuff. I think it's, it's good because it really, the focus was more on, you know, cultivating kids who, helping them grow uh, in character, in, in Christ, those kind of things. You you have three daughters, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, how old are they? Now. Yeah. Um, now, yeah. Now, let's see, the oldest is 25, 23, and 21. So two out of college. Actually, one was out of college. Now she's going back for a different degree. The other's about to be a senior. And, and so when, when, when you wrote that, that, that was a bit different, I guess. Yeah, that's right. They were in their early teens and younger. You yeah. should totally update that book. Like, yeah, that's a good a, idea. <laughs> as, as someone who has three little kids, uh, I mean, seven, five, and three, um, I find myself in conversations about parenting quite a bit. I mean, that's because of the ministry I do, and I'm surrounded. All of my friends essentially have kids around the same age. When me and my friends get together, there's like 25 kids that, that are like, you know, under eight or something. It's just like insa <laughs> insanity, right? Yeah. Um, but I mean, part of that is just like trying to figure it out. Like, okay, obviously we have our upbringing with our parents and the way they did it, the right stuff, the wrong stuff, all of that. You know, you come to an age and you realize stuff. And then, especially for those of us who come from non-Christian homes, there's an, kind of an added, hey, wait, I want to honor God in the way I want to be parent and some of this stuff that you're saying like i don't own my children god's given me the you know responsibility to care for my children and and 
I guess I'll okay. I'll navigate with that to our our subject because I think that takes a great deal of humility to recognize that. Um, like you're not God. You're not God of your life. You're not the God of your children. You know they're not your property or something like that. And we're using God maybe a bit loosely here. But how would you define humility? Yeah, that's good. So I like a sort of an intuitive definition I work with is that it's a a self-lowering other-centeredness and then you can catch that out in more detail but I would say like as a Christian I think I think Christ is the paradigm case of humility and kind of what forms the, the basis of my conception is the Philippians 2 1 through 11 passage which is uh, you know, the passage that, that most people when they write about it talk about the kenosis and what does it mean for Christ to you know empty himself or become human and, and those are thorny theological questions but when you actually read the passage in its context and the context of the overall book, the argument of Philippians, it's an, it's about ethics. It's about character. It's about imitating Christ. Hmm. So putting, so humility for Christians is, it's a social virtue. So a lot of secular philosophers and even some Christian ones think of humility primarily as a self-regarding trait where we just, it's re recognizing my limits, my weaknesses, my sin. Um, some would say it, it is that. But when you read through the way humility is discussed in the New Testament, the prominent way of understanding it is a, a virtue that is shown in relationship to God and to other people. Um, humble before God, humble before them. And before other people, it means putting their, it's a disposition to put their interests ahead of our own, right? To, hmm. yeah, okay. to value their interests more than our own. So I want your comments on this. I heard Dallas Willard define humility as um, thinking of yourself rightly. Uh, which is kind of where I've kind of tried to establish humility because sometimes, you know, like we think about stuff like, I give this example of like athletes. Let's just say you're like the greatest athlete on the planet on the subject. And somebody says, hey, you're the best at this. You know, all the stats, everything shows you're the best. At it. And you go, oh, no, I'm not, you know. And, yeah. and I, like everybody can recognize that as, wait, hang on, you are the best. You know, and, and there isn't, at least in my opinion, there isn't anything wrong with saying, yeah, I'm, I am currently the best in that subject. I don't know whether that, I'm not very sure if that's a non-humble kind of position. Uh, and maybe what would make it not humble is saying, yeah, and nobody's ever going to beat me. You know, I'm, I'm the greatest. I'm kind of taking it a step above that. But yeah. to recognize where you're at in kind of the skill set that you have. It's, it's like this fine balance. Um, I don't know. I mean, you, you can comment on that. And uh... No, I think that's really good. I actually deal with that exact kind of case in a, a, in a journal of applied philosophy. It's, it's humility of virtue in sports or something like that. And so I, I imagine your situation with Usain Bolt, right? So if he's maybe not now, but, you know, during his prime, for him to deny that he's the best 100-meter spur in the world, that's just that would be false humility. Right? It's just not true. Um, so I would argue what humility looks like in that situation, it's like you said, it's thinking of yourself rightly. And so I can be humble and think, yeah, I'm the best in the world. I mean, the numbers and <laughs> the empirical data support that. But that's done in the context of that doesn't make me any more valuable than other human beings or superior to them or my needs or interests more important. And it recognizes that that's, much of that's not up to me. Now, sure. I, I put the work in, don't want to um, ignore that fact. But think about all the things that have to happen for an elite athlete to be the best at mm. their sport in the world. Help of family and friends, genetic gifts, environmental, so, so when and where they were born, you know. I'm sure probably the fastest human ever that ever lived, nobody knows who they were. Uh, <laughs> probably is probably a safe bet. But um, in terms of these days, better chance. And so I, so that's kind of where I would come from on that. Yeah, it's very interesting. I was, uh, I was speaking to my oldest brother, who was a pretty decent soccer player in his day. And um, he, he was talking about how when he was like seven or eight, he went and signed himself up in the soccer team and, um, you know, would walk there, would walk to training alone as like an eight-year-old. And it was quite a bit of distance and stuff like that. Um, and then I told him, oh, I remember reading an article on Muhammad Salah and like he had to walk from his village to Cairo uh, where the training was and then the article was saying if he if he didn't do this task 
maybe he wouldn't have become the player that he is. Like, essentially, he was training when he was walking, but he had mm -hmm. to because it was out of necessity. You know, like, and you think about all the people in the world that do things because of necessity and maybe they don't have the opportunities to make it. Um, now, I talk about sports because I know you've done some writing in that area. Why don't you tell us about some of the writing in that specifically? Because I think it's utterly unique for a philosopher to write in those areas. Because mm. I know you love sports um, and you coach and um, and then some recent works that you've finished and are working on. And then we'll put the, we'll put the links to that stuff in the description box. Okay. Yeah, I didn't even really know philosophers worked in sports until back in 2006. I wanted to do one of those popular, you know, popular philosophy books. So like, you know, the first ones were like the Simpsons and philosophy, the matrix. Yeah. And I wanted to do one on running. Cause that was really, well, I, I played American football and, and association football. Sorry. I just have to put it that way. I can't help myself. <laughs> um, soccer growing up, um, really track and cross country kind of middle distance and distance running I was into. And I kept that up just on my own for fun in college. And since then, um, so I wanted to do a book on running and philosophy because there, there's already an affinity there. Like people, especially that do sort of longer distance running, it's a contemplative kind of thing, or at least it, a lot of people that do it are more introspective and more thoughtful, not everybody, but just draws that kind of personality. So I thought, well, this is a great thing. And I was like, well, who am I going to get to write chapters on this? You know, I knew I had friends that ran and that were, but then I came across uh, the International Association for the Philosophy of Sport, right? So it's this international group. Um, they, you know, there's all this literature on the Olympic, like Olympism and sports, and people go back to look what Plato said. Um, so anyway, a lot of what I've done, so the running and philosophy book, I did one on football, one on the Olympics, these kind of edited volumes. And then I wrote one on humility and the, as a virtue in the context of sport. And so I really want, I, I, they can be redeemed, right? So, we, I mean, we've even seen the past few days, the stuff with Simone Biles and people like jumping all over her and, and forgetting we, sports should be, they're about human excellence. And mm. we've got to remember that, that human part, right? So think about, well, I know you're a Liverpool supporter. So the, the young keeper, um, yeah. when they were in the final, you know, that could, <laughs> we're human, right? We make the best in the world, make mistakes. I tell my, the girls on my high school team, they shoot and miss a shot and they're all upset. And I say, look, the best players in the world miss more than they make. The key is keep taking them, right? Failures just a given for the best. So it is for you as well. And now I'm kind of going on a ramble. I'm not even sure where I'm headed with this, except for, I think that, I think especially as a Christian philosopher, a lot of Christians are really skeptical about the value of sports. Um, they mm. see the they see the win or die kind of attitude, or that winning winning is all that matters. Um, the presence of ego and all the things that we know are negative about it. But not only the ancient philosophers, but there's there's good sort of Christian thought that sports can be redeemed, right? So as a coach, I mean, it's a public school, so I'm not you know preaching the gospel to my my team. I'm trying to live it out in front of them. Um, by, you know, for example, a time where I lost it on the sidelines and I apologized to them, apologized to the ref that I did that to. Um, if I, you know, I just admit my limits to them. I say, you know, I don't know everything. So if you see something we need to work on, tell me, don't be afraid. Mm. But, but I think sports provide, as some scholars have put it, it's like a, a character laboratory, right? Because they're not real life in a certain sense. Um, especially thinking of youth sports here, although you can, all the way through the elite levels, a chance to cultivate and develop virtues that then can be transferred to other contexts. So if I can develop humility, um, you think about the playmaker in soccer who would rather provide an assist than a goal. A goal, I mean, they, they, get, they still get some glory, but nothing like the, you know, 30 goal a year yeah. guy that puts in the back of the net, but that's humility. Now, if I can recognize that's humility there and apply that same mindset to my relationship with my family or my friends or whatever, there's value there. And then the only other thing I can think of this, you know, every once in a while, somebody actually reads your paper in an academic journal and like to get something out of it, not just to argue with it. Um, <laughs> I wrote a thing several years ago called sports as exercises in spiritual formation or something like that for the journal of spiritual formation and soul care it's like take using sports i mean they're, they're valuable for their own sake but i think they also are value in they can be they can be a context where we cultivate our walk with god and uh, and grow in christian virtue 
So yeah, so I've commented in in the church context, and I've usually gotten weird stares from people when I've said things like, "Well, when I play soccer, it's it's a time of like rest and solitude for me," um, and because I can. Like, if I'm just boggled and just have a lot of stuff going on, I prefer to play soccer because I can block everything out for that, whatever, 40 minutes, an hour and a half, whatever it might be. It's just like the game. And um, and so it, it becomes a restful kind of experience where I'm just like, okay, I'm kind of not focusing on anything else. And and, and kind of people look at it, wait, but you're physically getting tired, right? Like you're running, you're not sitting, it's not a restful kind of activity. But that's just experientially, I realized that pretty early on in my Christian walk, like here's an activity that I do where nothing else really matters. Um, and and then I found out about spiritual disciplines, like, hey, this 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 seems to be that in, in that context. You got a book on your shelf back there. It says God and Guns in America. And it's kind of, yeah. I love, uh, I don't know whether you did the cover for that, but it's, it's like stares you in the face. <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> it's nice. It's, um, it's a nice title. Yeah, I've been trained on these video interviews, right? You just put one of your books up there. <laughs> Absolutely. And so um, tell us about that, because that seems to be uh, amongst conservatives, uh, conservative, uh, when I say, well, that means a bunch of stuff, but let's just yeah. generally say conservative American evangelicals, whatever like that. Uh, it might be a bit controversial as to what you're arguing for in that book. Yeah, so I sort of fell into that. I didn't really set out to intentionally write the book. Several years ago, I think I had read some stuff, and both secular and some Christian stuff, and I thought these are really bad arguments or really poor uses of Scripture. And I've seen it on both sides, but at that time it was primarily the more conservative bent, mm -hmm. because of course that's what you know more of that shows up, I think, from Christians in America. Um, so I wrote an online thing or two about it, just responding, and then then I did a kind of a, a debate, I guess, in. Um, Christian Research Journal, that magazine, several years ago. And then I just, I got contacted. This has never happened to me. Uh, I don't know if it ever will again, but by a publisher who, they were looking for somebody to write this kind of book. And because at that time, there really was nothing, like no book-length treatment, hmm. or at least not many. I came across a couple, but they, they were kind of, they were differently oriented. So I just wanted to try to, as a, well, as a way to learn. A lot of times when I write something, it's to figure out what I think. That was part of this. And then also to, I wanted to, I, the book's intended to really challenge people at both ends of the spectrum. So I, I really challenge the, the conservative, as you talk about Christian, who is this, like really sort of falls in line with sort of strong Second Amendment, almost seeing Second Amendment as an absolute right and near absolute, um, wants to um, like really strong self-defense. And I would say actually sometimes it errs into to a, so not realizing that self-defense, even if it's justified Christianly, which I think it can be, uh, that it's that it's a tragedy, right? Because it's mm. it ends up hurting or killing someone made in God's image. And since you know the worst of us are that. On the other side, I do I argue in the book that there is there are moral justifications for the right to bear arms, right? So people that are that are more on the extreme pacifist side don't really appreciate that much. So I try to <laughs> thread the needle a little bit, um, and I I come up with this. I construct a view or I guess really describe a view called being a peacemaker. And in one sense, it's just just war theory recast. But mm. but I wanted to put it that way because I think even just the name just war theory orients your thoughts to, OK, how can we defend violence or defend going to war mm. or peacemaker is, yeah, there are times where violence might be necessary, but but truly taking it as a last resort, which just war theory says it does. But in practice, we don't see that. Um, people still use it, and, and they don't really take that last resort criterion seriously. Peacemaker in Christ says, look, if there is a nonviolent solution, I'm going to go to the mat for that. Um, so, yeah. Um, con I mean, I've, so I've kind of taken criticisms from both um, both sides, and I'm pretty, I'm usually a centrist about many things, so I'm kind of used to that, but I want to speak you know, I know I do it wrongly and I'm, I don't know everything. I mean, if I knew what I was wrong about, I hope I'd change my mind. But I'm trying to speak prophetically kind of to both wings of the church yeah. and see what, where's some common ground we can have. And where can we just realize that there are um, 
plausible Christian arguments on both sides of it, right? Sort of on the on these questions of war and peace and guns and things like that. So I tend more towards the pacifist and the restriction side, but also recognizing that that there is a, I would argue, a right to self defense and even a, a moral right to bear arms in certain contexts. Hmm. Okay, so th- this is this kind of brings us into disagreement, right? Because talking about yeah. humility and disagreement. Um, and it's very interesting because usually most of us find ourselves disagreeing with one group of people. You kind of, with this book specifically, put yourself <laughs> in a place where you're disagreeing with, you know, these, these wings, like you said. Um, how can we do it well? Because a lot of times I see just people in general, maybe, maybe it's American society. I don't think it is because I kind of live in between cultures, I would say. Um, how can we disagree well? As Christians, uh, and I would say this in two ways. How can we disagree well with as Christians with others who aren't Christians? And then how can we disagree well with other Christians? Because I think that's there is a change in there, like family dynamics. Like, hey, uh, so let, let's talk about that and then uh, we'll go with uh, the next subject. Yeah, let's start with like Christians to Christians because I think... Man, that's just hard because it seems like, I don't know if it's really gotten worse, but it sure feels like it's gotten worse Mm. in the past five, six years. Some of that has to do with Trump, some with the pandemic. But even before that, people would, I think it's probably because it's more public on social media. Like people would get in really heated disagreements, well, of course, throughout history, right, about theology and, you know, to the point of killing each other over our theology. But if we think about just the contemporary scene, I mean, look, Christians have to just realize that the starting point is that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, right? That everything should start there. So we're family members. I mean, the, the, I mean, if I, if you take Jesus at his word, those, those family bonds among um, believers are stronger than biological ones, right? Um, in the sense of if I'm, if I have to give up one or the other, I'm supposed to give up those kinship relations, mm-hmm. not, not my faith and my brothers and sisters in, sisters in Christ. Tragedy, but still, you know, I think you can make a case for that. So regardless of, especially in that culture, when the family relationships were so much stronger and tighter. Um, so I think they would have heard him much more radically than, than yeah. we do today, at least in uh, 21st century America. So that's the starting point, right? And and if we're, you look at those, so much of the New Testament of Paul and others, when they talk about what's going on, it's protecting the purity and, and the the truth, right? So that the office of teacher is really important, but then it's protecting the unity of the body of Christ and that we need each other. Uh, we rely on each other, that, that we'll, they'll know each other. They'll know we're his disciples by our love. And so as, as we go at each other, in one sense, that's okay if we're debating something, right? If we're going at the issues, the ideas, but it's so hard not to turn that into going at the person and at their character, or are they really a Christian? You know, all those kind of things. So we start with that. We realize we're made in God's image, both of us, right? And <laughs> we belong to him. Um, and then I guess I'll say one more thing, and it actually comes from Dallas Willard too, which I have appropriated in my, like in the classes I teach in ethics here, just this picture. Willard says we should see ourselves, I believe it's from The Allure of Gentleness, one of my favorite apologetics books, that we, we shouldn't see ourselves as like in opposition face-to-face, right? arguing and debating we should see ourselves standing side by side trying to discuss and help each other discover the truth mm. and i think if we just do that's radical for me uh, a radical change and while i think in the mid i yeah so that's what i i think if we approached it that way and look and with some humility realizing that you know what this person i could learn from this person they might be right and i might be wrong even if that's not the case i could still learn and grow from them um, and it's a chance to grow in character, right? And patience and love. If you ultimately disagree, that you can still you know, love the person and agree to disagree and move on in Christ together. Yeah, you know, um, a while ago, I, I don't remember what context this was in, but um, it might have been an ethics class. I'm, it might have been like a normative ethics class. We were we were looking at Nazi propaganda, and. Um, one of the ways that they got their way was, you know, drawing these pictures and stuff like that and putting it out there where they were human, dehumanizing um, the other, right? The Jew in this case. 
you know, they were oh, they're like rats and stuff like that, and they would do these caricature paintings and pictures and stuff like that, and and we've seen that repeated. I, I think it's the same issue with abortion, referring to children in the womb as like clump of cells or something like that. There's a dehumanizing that's taking place actually there. Um, and with Christians, one of the things I've realized that happens subtly is that whenever someone disagrees with you, somehow they're not a Christian. Like this secondary issue, whatever it is that you're uh, disagreeing with, say it's a theological point, um, now becomes so central where they're no longer Christian. So now you're somehow justified to approach them and, you know, call them to repentance or something like that. When the individual is like, no, I'm a Christian. I just don't agree with what you're saying. Here's my justification biblically. Um, and that's extremely dangerous. Um, because essentially what we're saying is that they're not a child of God. And if God's, if, if God thinks they're a child and we don't think they're a child, <laughs> I, I, I see that as being a big problem. Yeah. Um, so in the, in the midst of disagreement, I mean, how do we bring in some of these virtues, right? Like how do you train yourself practically to disagree well with people who might actually be going out of their way to offend you? Right. Especially. Yeah, di <laughs> yeah, right. It's difficult. So like, like in person, it's generally been a, I generally haven't had a problem doing that with people face to face. But mm. I mean, look, I was I mean, people that know me at all stuff I've written know that I was pretty um, strongly opposed to, to Trump as a president on certain and certain reasons. So I, I felt called to make arguments about that. Um, with that, with the guns thing, these days with critical race theory, some stuff that I've pushed back on some of the stuff with, I think that it was easy for me in those screen to screen interactions, just to like react. That first reaction wasn't, al wasn't always the Christian one. So mm. I've, you know, I've apologized to people in public and in private. Um, that's important, right? If I blow it, cause you know, the, when you apologize, sooner or later if you're still apologizing for the same thing it's a sign that maybe you haven't really repented and so you got to do some you know let the spirit do some soul work mm -hmm. but i think that um <laughs> i lost it arthur tell me that what okay so, <laughs> so okay I, when people are kind of getting on your nerves right like mm -hmm. it's it's yeah. these oh the virtues yeah like what yeah. practical things you can do to develop virtues like that to not repeat the same stuff i guess yeah yeah, that's good. So I think I think it's the first is the humility, and where does that come from? And it's 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 got to be through prayer and asking God, create that in you, help you cultivate it. And so I can do some intentional things to cultivate humility, like do acts of service that go unrecognized, or um, practice not saying anything about my accomplishments, right? Mm. Or um, as Dallas Willard once said, have practice the discipline of not having to have the last word. That's been a good one for me in real life and online. Because I think as believers, especially those of us who, um, well, look, we just, we have a passion for Christ and the truth. And so there's this compulsion in us sometimes to like not let something go that's, that we think is false or dangerous. And I'm not saying we should just let everything go. But what I am saying is we don't always need the last word. And you look at how Christ related to people. It was nuanced. It was wise. And yeah, if we could, I mean, he would be hardcore with some people, other people gentle, but he always, you know, we're not going to, we can't like, we're not omniscient. Or well, we're not the incarnate son of God. So we're a little handicapped compared to him, but still that, that way of thinking um, patiently of humility, of, of compassion. And so for me, it's helped to see, both in myself, because I recognize that when I, a lot of times when I act, act in ways that are that are wrong or vicious or prideful, mm. it, sometimes it's just sin nature. Sometimes it's it's the simple response to you know kind of your environment, how you grew up, whatever it is. But realizing other people are messed up too, and and rather than just seeing them as jerks, seeing them as as people who are fallen, um, just like we are. So kind of level the playing field in that way, um, where they're just messed up in different ways than we are um, and trying to give the grace that we would want. I think those are practical yeah. helps, but that discipline of not having the last word, not having to have it, that can be useful, especially for you know people who study philosophy and theology, because we're always 
you know, our, 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 our trade is arguments in a certain sense. Right. And so yeah. it's being willing just to let things go and, and trust that that's okay to do. God had that, you know, God's bigger than you. Um, yeah. Maybe, maybe all philosophers should have a requirement to get married or something. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, that would be sad for their spouses. <laughs> well, yeah. they'd, they'd very quickly realize that not arguments are arguments worth fighting and winning. Well, that's true. <laughs> I know that's true of, uh, in my life. Um, yeah. So bringing this into intellectual honesty, because, you know, there's things that we believe. Uh, there's things that we think are true. Say like you were you were uh, speaking about the gun conversation, and there's Bible passages that regularly are used, for example. Yeah. And then saying, okay, I'm gonna give this a serious shot. You sit down, you look back at the passages, you go, oh man, even though I want this passage to support my viewpoint, it doesn't seem like that's the case. And I think a lot of us, on various subjects, have seen this. Sometimes theological ones. Um, you sit down, you really dig through the passage. And you go, mm, yeah, it's not really in support of my statement. Like either the author's trying to say something completely different, or maybe it's actually saying what the opposing side is trying to say here. Yeah. Um, how do we develop an, the ability to have that sort of an intellectual honesty where that's the norm in our lives? Mm. I think... When you feel that, like I felt this with the gun debate, where something because I, I used some empirical stuff in that book, some of it I'm pretty confident in, some of it, some of it now I would probably back off. Like I, there's a like one example is how many defensive gun uses there are per year. Mm -hmm. So you can find numbers anywhere from roughly fifty thousand to others claiming three point five million. Well, that's a pretty big difference. Um, and so I tried to somewhere in the lower end, but in the middle or in between those two. But then I, I got a, uh, I just contacted this guy at Johns Hopkins who has done this kind of research for 20 years. And he said he's come to the conclusion that we don't really know and we can't really know the number. And so and he gave some reasons why and it made sense, right? So, so it's being willing to admit that kind of stuff. But when you feel that, I mean, you know that feeling you get where, like when you're talking about, I've got a theological position, I think a pastor supports it, and then I read it. I have the experience of like this, I don't know if it's a frustration or anxiety or just that tension, both cognitive and emotional. Well, that's a time to just say, okay, I'm feeling this way. Why? You know, probably because there's some pressure being put on maybe some of my beliefs. And what do I do about that? Right. And try to pray to come at it honestly. I think that's part of it. I think the other thing we can do is to do these kind of things in community. Right. So I, we study with others or we work through these things in conversation with others. So I have good friends that if there's some kind of issue, I'm dealing with or struggling with whether you know some passage of scripture doctrine or philosophical view i could talk through it and they're not they're not going to be afraid to say i'm wrong right or mm. or at least challenge me or say well here's what i think and why so it's as it's someone who teaches you know most 20 year olds or 19 year olds aren't they don't really jump at the chance to disagree with a professor which is unfortunate but it's the nature of it um so you need people who are willing to do that right um, so has that changed by the way in your in your career uh, where maybe previously you had uh, your students more willing to disagree with you than kind of nowadays. Yeah, it seems like they're a little less willing these days. Um, and I've always encouraged it. I've told them, you know, I tell them what to start. Disagreeing is not going to affect your grade. I don't care what and I say. You know, I tell them in a certain sense, I don't care what you think in this, yeah. and for the purposes of the class. Now, I care what you think because I want you to believe what's true, care about what's good and what's beautiful. But those are, you know, that's the other thing from Willard. It's like trusting people to come to that with your help, but also on in their time or in God's time. So I think students today, I mean, what's a little different in Eastern Kentucky University, just culturally, it's still, there's still like a Christian subculture through mm -hmm. a lot of this part of the country. Um, not, I wouldn't say like, I mean, there's good and bad about the Bible Belt for sure. One good thing is there's still sort of this, some familiarity with the, with the basic Christian story and the scriptures, although that's that's waning as well. But so so students are respectful here generally. But yeah, I think these days students are really afraid just to take a stand about something. 
because they're afraid of what will happen to them, right? If well, they, if, why so do you what, think you know, that is? I mean, other than like what what would happen to them? Well, yeah, I mean, maybe it's the it's the concern about rejection by their peers, right? Whether and this can be across the spectrum, right? So there's you know most. I mean, yeah, the data shows most like university faculty tend democratic or left, you know, left or left of center in the U.S., minority or more conservative. So I think in that environment, for some, they don't care at all. They'll just say what they think. I think others mm -hmm. are scared too. like they feel they're like these boundaries that no one really says, but you can feel that they're there. So they might be afraid of that. Um, might be switched to some more, more conservative, like evangelical colleges and seminaries where they, you know, they feel that conservative pressure. Yeah. But I think it's just, look, the thing I loved about Talbot, uh, one of the many things where I got my master's, what, it might have been the first day of class, and sort of classic J.P. Moreland. He was like, Any, everything's up for grabbing here, like everything. So we didn't have to be afraid of saying what we thought. And so, you know, yeah. that's good. We need to have that environment um, wherever we're at. doesn't mean that anything goes, but it means that anything can be put on the table for discussion and analysis and argument. And so I, I think the other reason is students are just they aren't confident in their intellectual abilities. Um, there's an insecurity there maybe. And this is sort of off the cuff, but I've had conversations and done some reading about it. And I think that's a big part. I think, and even from talking to students who I've interacted with my students who don't really speak up in class, a lot of them are just afraid to talk, right? And that's okay. I didn't talk much, at least my first couple of years of college. I just mm -hmm. sat in the back and, you know, <laughs> avoided or scoffed when I felt like it or, you know, was stoic, but, but I think they, there's a lack of confidence that in them and themselves intellectually. And so if we can help them both have a, a confidence grounded in truth and give them opportunities to cultivate some of the intellectual virtues, we can help them. Yeah. I wonder how much of this stuff is cultural because me and my surroundings, the Armenians are very loud um, folks. And I, I, for example, like I never struggled with that. And that can be because I grew up in a home with three other boys. Uh, I'm pretty sure it is partly because, you know, I'm, I'm the third in the four boys kind of lineup. And so I survival, I had to survive in my house to a certain yeah. extent. Um, some of this culture is like you're encouraged to do these things. You know, so it was very weird for me to see classmates that had something to say and not say it mm -hmm. it's like why why is that the case um how can we c cultivate i guess family in our families children you know even in our church communities this intellectual honesty that comes with hey it's okay to struggle and deal and be honest with whatever you're doing with without necessarily being like ostracized or judged or something like that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think we do a lot. I mean, we still have a long way to go, but I guess I've said, I can say, I think we've seen progress. Like there are more people in churches and around churches willing to, where someone might express some doubts and there are at least my sense is there are more places where that can be, that's dealt with better than maybe it was 30 years ago. Um, say when I was in, in college, but it's still a big problem, I think. And so just, we're so worried about people believing the exact right things, but we forget that they're people hmm. and that, that, it, that it's a process, right? And so uh, I think, again, it's having communities where those things are valued. So look, if I've got, I mean, these days, the kind of language that gets used is deconstruction, right? Um, and I hate that term for it because I, I think at its best it should be something more like renovation right mm. when it, because i think what we're doing we're trying well some people it ends up as we know it ends in atheism or even a really sort of antagonistic atheism but some people go through kind of that process and are trying to figure out okay what are the things i believe that are more a product of say american culture or armenian culture or hungarian culture where i lived a long time ago for a year and what are some things that actually are are true of the way of Jesus and that are of him, of the truth? And so that that's valuable work. And so just being willing to do that and give people the space to work through that and encourage them without having to try to fix them. You know, I mean, we probably all have the experience of being in a small group and you share a struggle, whether it's like a 
something going on at work or your family or even something you believe. And then there's the person who gives you the five minute sermon to sort of fix you. Um, and maybe it's my personality, but, but just usually it just doesn't work. Right. I don't want to be talked at, I guess. And I think most of us don't, I think the spirit behind it is people are genuinely trying to help. So I'm not saying that, but I think there are better ways to go about it. And we just, we're not good at, at, at that balance of challenging someone, but giving them grace and compassion for where they're at. And so I would love it if people could say, could raise these questions. I mean, so here's an example. Several years ago, we were part of a younger church and I'm actually a registered independent. I've been registered as all in all three parties over the 35 years of my voting. So I'm kind of politically all over the map. So I thought, well, independent's probably the best. It's the most representative. But in Kentucky several years ago, um, there's the gubernatorial election. Another guy at church was talking about the guy who had the incumbent and he was a Republican. And I said, no, I actually voted for the Democrat. I mean, there's some differences. I thought this was a better decision in this particular case. But you would have thought like I, yeah, like I had just, you know, desecrated the sanctuary, you know, somehow. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I mean, but people have really deep convictions, both as Christians and even evangelical Christians on the left and on the right. Um, and we tend to, look, I've had people do that, say, I've had people assure me that even though I'm not as conservative as they think I should be, that they still think I'm a Christian. I'm just like... <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah, I mean, I get I get that in a sense because the, the view is these things are just as they're like core convictions of mine that I take from Scripture. That's their perspective. But, of course, people have that across the political spectrum um, with yeah. biblical convictions. And so there's no clean divide. And I know that people argue about that, and I'm not really – honestly, I don't even <laughs> – I'm just I'm worn out by the politics stuff. But um, – but I think that's it. We've got to give people the space to do that. And so if my child, like we've, yeah, she wouldn't mind me sharing this. Like when our oldest daughter was in middle school, it's that classic American Christian teenager angst. I'm not sure I'm really a Christian. You know, I'm not sure what I believe. And we didn't jump all over her and give her 10 apologetics books. We just mm. talked about it. We asked her what was going on. And, and we did go through some apologetic stuff and just some conversations. And, and often those kind of doubts can be, as you as you know, probably from experience and ministering to people, sometimes they're intellectual, sometimes they're purely emotional, sometimes they're both. Like in recent, last couple of years even, I'd say, talking with some friends of mine, I think I have, I have some doubts, but I would cast them as emotional or maybe, I don't know, existential or phenomenological, to mm. use fancy words. I can't like say, I'm really struggling with the problem of evil or why did God do this? or Why didn't God do this? It's more just like, a felt sense of God's absence or something like that. Um, and there are several reasons for it. One of them is I think I wasn't really, the word wasn't really living and active in my life. That's one. Another is I think God, scripture, God does hide himself from us sometimes mm. for, for the purpose of our growth. And so, yeah, if we could just not panic and entrust not just ourselves, but our people in our church and our children to God and seek to love and serve them, I mean, I think the best advice I, could, I would give to parents now as someone who's a little farther down the road is if you're going to err, err on the side of love and grace and encouraging your kids wherever they're at. Um, that doesn't mean anything goes, but but just in a certain sense, we could just lighten up a little bit and, and put more of our energy into those things. So I don't know if that's helpful, but those are the things no, that jump No, it is. Mind. You know, in the, I'm thinking in the church context because there's always this fear of like heresy coming in and false teaching coming in and... You know, I've had situations in church context where I've had to put pull people aside and say, hey, I heard you were teaching such and such a thing to someone or um, and it wasn't the, in the sense of like, oh, I'm questioning this, but you were teaching it as though that's what the Bible teaches. And that's not a biblical position. I mean, yeah. I guess there's always that fear when people say. <clears throat> so in like Bible study, right, somebody might say, I'm not sure about this Trinity. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, you could have a reasonable discussion on that. It's like, okay, what if no, you're not sure? Let's look at the text. Let's do this. But there's a difference with that and somebody going around saying, oh, the Trinity is not in the Bible. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. this is not, Christians shouldn't believe in the Trinity. Right. Something like that, where I, I guess the approach changes in, in that kind of a sense. But, 
we should still have some kind of a room even for those people um, that are teaching that stuff but in a, in a balanced way where they're obviously not going into very fundamental teachings of our churches and, and our communities. Yeah, you want people in your community and anyone who, in a certain sense, someone who's... But it's difficult because those sort of things really matter. So if... Like, I wouldn't want that person leading a small group. And if that person was in a small group, you would have to... I mean, probably a case-by-case basis, but you don't want... I mean, it just seems consistent with the new testament that look there are certain things that are non-negotiable and to be a part of this you need to believe x y and z right someone denies the resurrection i'm sorry you can't be you know you can come to our church yeah (laughs) but you can't be a member because that's a core commitment of our community just to put the most you know what i would argue is the least at least biblically controversial um requirement for being a member of the body of christ (laughs) you know I mean, I know there's a ton of other stuff, Trinity and other historical doctrines, but so I'm taking the easiest low-hanging fruit there. But, oh. but yeah, but I think it's difficult. And I think that I think there's a lot. There's a lot more confusion, a lot. People have a lot broader spectrum of belief or questions than than we realize. I've come to see that over the years because I've assumed people believe X, Y and Z. And then I have a conversation with them and they don't or they only believe X and Y. Things that I think are kind of fairly clear um, from Scripture, from from our tradition. So, yeah, but we've got to be able to engage people like that, give them space to ask questions, and uh, yeah, just try to come alongside them rather than. Now, there are there are times for confrontation. I'm not arguing against that, but I think often maybe we're too quick to that in some instances, and then in other instances not quick enough. So, oh, okay. Um... So I'm going to share a story that I had and I want you to comment on it because uh, so I had like this. I don't want to say it's a crisis of faith, but it, it was probably the most intense one I've had. And that's when I was in uh, in seminary. I was working on a paper on whether God was free to create the universe the way it is, you know, the, like out of all possible worlds, you know, if God would. You know, and so I was reading William Rowe and I was reading a book he wrote on the subject and he gave this like completely valid argument in my mind. Uh, but his conclusion was, therefore, God doesn't exist. And I was I was kind of staring at this. I actually remember what I was doing. I was sitting down, you know, on the ground reading and everything started to flash between my eyes. I was like, OK, if this is true, I got to drop out of school. I got to stop <laughs> my job, you know, like. My entire life changes based on this. And I remember thinking, wait, there are people that are way more intelligent than I am. You know, and at the time I was thinking about my professors and and they're I'm pretty sure they're familiar with this argument. They're just not convinced by it. That's the only thing that kept me kind of balanced in it and saying there must be something wrong in here. Now, I say that because there was all sorts of emotions and thoughts happening um, at that moment. Because um, you spoke about community. This is why this story popped up in my mind. You spoke about community. And that was my community. It was like, wait, I have all these people. How does that kind of come into the picture of cultivating humility and intellectual honesty and disagreement, doing all that well? Like God. When I say well, I mean honoring God. Yeah. No, I think that's vital. I have, I mean, some similar, not exactly that experience, but just so a friend of mine who's a pastor several years ago was talking about that. Like just, just, he couldn't pray. And and so he would, the only prayers he could bring himself to do were, were sort of more liturgical, right? Prayers that had been written out by somebody else. So he did that because it just, what was going on in his life, just the extemporaneous stuff just wasn't there. Um, Struggling with his faith. And then and he talked about, I think I had shared it, that this was a long time ago, well, relatively long time, you know, some struggles with doubts I was having. And it's like, that's when, you know, sometimes the faith of the community can help carry you along in those moments where yours is wavering. Um, and so I take it, I think that's an important part of humility. It's like, it's like the, you know, when you're 18 and you read Nietzsche and then you think, well, this is, this is it, right? This is everything. Obvi- Sorry, <laughs> I moved out of the camera. I'm getting a, I've got a little family emergency, not an emergency, but I'm going to 
send my daughter a text. Is that all right, Arthur? Yeah, yeah go for it. If you can edit this or not, then it'll no, just be. No, this is raw. Um, be, that's good. Fam and this goes, I guess, with our comment uh, and what we're talking about. Fam family comes before all these things. Yeah, that's right. That's so, so. I was supposed to leave her a debit card to go get some, but she's just moved back to our house and going to nursing school. She was a journalist in Louisville. Mm. And so sometimes they come back. All right. So that's done. Now, <laughs> that's I, okay. now I can focus back in. Um, that's right. Family Americans need to realize most of the world lives in these like gigantic community complexes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Like they got like three generational. Like when I was in Armenia, um, that's one of the things like you go into a home and then there's in Armenia, it's really crazy because it'll be, you know, the family and then it'll be the parents, the children. And then at times there's like aunts and uncles as well. Yeah. Um, and it's a gigantic family unit and then decisions are made and you're kind of like, I'm just really not used to this. Uh, but that's most of the world. Uh, yeah, there's there's a good side to that as well. Yeah, certainly. And so I think, yeah, that that can be. Look, the humility, that's that's what you asked. And I think that's an excellent example. It's like, so I come across Nietzsche, oh, God, you know, who's, no, God, doesn't everybody know this? Of course, religion is all just evil, right? And then, or think about the problem of evil, right? There are still philosophers trotting out the logical problem of evil, like it just proves there's no God, right? It's like they haven't read Plantinga um, or carefully or, you know. But I think there's something to that. So it's like, it's like you said, they are realizing that there are people that are a lot more intelligent than I am, that know a lot more than me, that still think Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the Bible's reliable. Now, you can't just use that as, well, for some people, that's enough, and that's okay, right? So not everybody is called to sort of dig into these things more deeply, and I have people that I know that are like, yeah, the uh, wonderful followers of Jesus, that that's enough for them. They don't need to read it all. You and me, we're, we're different. Like part of the reason I went back to this stuff is I knew there were people that knew all that stuff, but I wanted to know that stuff. I wanted to dig in for myself, right? That was just, I think that was part of the call of God, hmm. personality structure, those kind of things. But it is humility to say, I'm not an expert. Even the experts disagree, but, but being, as a Christian, being willing to trust members of your community and, and realize that being able to hold those questions and not let them dominate your life, but taking, as William Lane Craig, I think he said this once in an interview I watched, we've all got more questions if we are into this stuff than we'll have time to really answer in mm. a lifetime, like to go all the way down. So he said, take an issue that maybe the one that's bothering you the most or one that you would really like to dig into, dig into that one. Right? Go, go in depth. Interact with, like in your case, your professors. What, why do they not believe that argument? What, what can you read? Replies to Roe, those kind of things. That's helped me because, and I guess the other thing that helps is over time, as I look back, I'm 52, about questions I've had over the years. To varying degrees, they've all been answered, at least the ones that I've dug into, to, to my satisfaction, some more easily than others. But then that builds a sort of faith. It's like when the next question comes up mm. well, I don't know the answer it's like it doesn't tend to like rock your world so much right it doesn't mean you ignore it necessarily but it, it, there's less of that the, like you described sort of this flash going on and you know like I've got to change my whole life I've been living a lie for 30 years yeah. <laughs> you know that kind of stuff so I think that's really helpful that humility and look we could use a lot of that today um, not just in the church but in our culture um, oh I agree yeah I've been I've been on the fence sort of with the I, I forget her name it's simone right um um the olympian that dropped out oh simone biles yeah. yeah and so because my initial reaction was when i saw it my initial reaction was you're an athlete you've put yourself out there this is going to be a stressful situation yeah the world is watching yeah. it like you should know this um and the other thing the the thing that also popped up is you took someone's spot um like someone was training their entire life to be where you are and then you just dropped out and th that person. So I was kind of thinking in that route as well. But as I've been reading um, and, and various folks, I'm just kind of like, hang on here. And like, we got to be great because I'm seeing people be not being gracious at all. Like, even if she's wrong, I don't care. Even if she's wrong, she shouldn't have done Like, you got to be gracious. <laughs> yeah. Like she okay, she made a mistake. Like forgive, and I'm seeing Christians not being very forgiving and not being very gracious. And it's just always ironic. 
uh, yeah. in a situation like that. Well, and I've seen people, whether either just lie and not, not, not Christians, either lie or just not pay attention to what happened. So I watched the, re, you know, the replay last night. I didn't watch it live. It's mm. the middle of the night. But you can hear her tell her teammates, I've got to do this. I don't want to jeopardize us being able to, our team being able to win a medal. Like, whatever's going on, set that aside. I'll take her at her word that she knew that she didn't have it, right? That whatever yeah. they called it, the twisties. You know, you learn these things when something happens, right? Where she couldn't orient herself in the air. Well, one, she could snap her neck, so because the stuff they do is incredible. Um, two, yeah, that probably she probably, yeah, she did undermine or, or weaken their chance at gold. They didn't get gold, but and, but her at least her one of her stated reasons was if if I go out and do this again, a week might not even be on the podium at all. Um, so to me, there's a humility in that. Number one, because it's sacrificing somewhat of your own image for the team. Uh, number two, she had to know, or at least probably figured out. I mean, I would guess she had to know how much criticism she'd come under for that. Oh, yeah. Right? That people people would be all over her like there are. So, so yeah, I think that's a that's a case. Yeah, and I guess yeah. this takes us back to originally when we spoke about like thinking about yourself rightly, right? Um, if um, you know, we we saw this in the European uh, situation. Uh, with the with the uh, the soccer competition, and um, you know some players didn't take the penalty, and I was at like for England, and I was like, why are you guys not taking the? Why is this 18 year old guy yeah. volunteering to take this penalty, and everyone's standing there saying, yeah, we're fine with that. I mean, and it could be, it could be that some of the guys on the field were like, hey, I'm too tired, I don't think I can do this, so it was just kind of out of necessity. It's always easier when we look at these situations. And it is a humble thing to say, yeah, I'm one of the best players in the world, but right now, I, I don't, I don't think I'm going to make this, so I'm going to leave it to someone else who I think has a better chance. Yeah. Um, and it could be the case that she made the humble decision in saying, guys, I'm sorry, I don't think this, uh, this is going to work, and it's, it's also dangerous. Uh, so I don't want to maybe jeopardize the rest of my career. I want to be back for the next Olympics and actually win gold or something like that. And yeah, and we just don't know what's going on in people's mind. That's what, like, take the penalty kick thing. People jumped all over Grealish right away, and then he's like, look, yeah. I wanted to take it, but the, that was the coach's decision, and this is how they practiced it. And so sometimes, and with, bio, with Simone, too, it's like the culture we're in, it would just jump all over everybody, all these assumptions. We know what's going on. We know your motivations. Mm. And that's a lack of humility, too, because we don't have a clue. I mean, you know, I teach... Uh, Christian Miller's book, The Character Gap. I use that in my um, beginning ethics, intro to ethics class. And there's a discussion in there about motives, right? And it, it's hard to know if somebody else is virtuous because we don't always know their motives. Well, we don't know what's, I don't know what's going on in Simone Biles' soul and in her mind any more than I knew what was going on in Grealish. Although, as an Arsenal supporter, I was devastated. I wanted England to win, but also was like, oh, Jesus, this better not destroy him because Saka is like, one of the brightest players on our yeah. team from our academy, but yeah. he'll come back. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think that's a good, another good example. It can be humility. It could also be pride, right? I think I don't want to be the one to miss the goal. I don't want that to happen to me. We don't know. Right. Yeah. Um, and so instead of just judging it, we just have to, we just have to be more comfortable with stuff that we don't know, whether it's doctrines that are more, that aren't as clearly taught that there are plausible interpretations in the scripture or what's going on in a gymnast or a, soccer players head yeah okay we'll finish off with this uh in the world of social media because i know you're active on social media and i appreciate that and i i don't okay, there's stuff you put man where i'm like my initial reaction is i've i've written stuff and i've deleted on your post i'll tell you that yeah that's good <laughs> i've done the same thing to myself <laughs> and others <laughs> and so but some of them are, are very challenging to me and so that that's why i'm uh, i want to thank you for actually being active i know i know it, it's weighty because sometimes i'll see a comment and i'll there's like 70 something comments on the bottom and it was like, Oh man, yeah. I'm not even going to get involved in this because yeah. it's already yeah. on fire. Right. Um, and, and a while ago you posted something I commented on and then you ended up deleting it and then sent me a message saying, Hey, I deleted that message because mm -hmm. you know, and you gave your reasons. Um, and again, that, that for me is like, Hey, there's, there's humility here. You know, it's not like uh, I said it. So what? So in a world where, Twitter, Facebook messages, whatever, you know, YouTube, you record something, put it up there. 
how do we navigate this stuff? How do we, um, I know you won't have like the complete answer, but you know, we, yeah. we, we want to honor Jesus. Even if someone's not a Christian, we still believe someone could be like a well-rounded individual in these areas and, and function well. So what are, what are some tips that you might have? Yeah, I think, so this is something I've gone back and forth on over the past 13 or 14 years. I gave a talk here on our campus in a lecture series. I think it was 2008 or 10 called the ethics of Facebook. Um, so it's a long time ago, but still Facebook was, you know, big deal even then. And I basically like went through some philosophy and psychological work that had been done. It's like, you should just, you should probably not be on it at all. And if you are on it, really limit it. And I'd been off it for a few years. And then uh, when you're like, like do what we do and a lot of people ensure and minister academia. Well, I just need to get on there so I can like have, whether it's have a platform or have a good influence or, you know, some people just get on there to sell books. Although mm -hmm. from what I can tell, not my books, of course not. Cause you know, philosophy, but um, even others who write books are like bestsellers that don't even have social media. Mm -hmm. So I'd say we, you can have a good influence there. Right. But, Maybe some of the same, it's trying to realize, I mean, the medium is tough. So it's realizing that's a person, even if it's someone I've never met before. So another human being in God's image, whether it's a, someone who's all over me because of my politics or someone who maybe I've had atheists come at me um, over stuff I've written online and just kind of, for me, it's actually easier to deal with an atheist charitably than a, another Christian. Maybe because I'm in a sec, like in a public university. And so that's, but anyway, I think sometimes it's just like you don't have to like I've, I've tried to minimize just because I have a thought or a response to something doesn't mean I have to actually type it in right mm -hmm. to Twitter or Facebook. I can just I can read something and if I like it, that's great. I'll press a little like if I don't like it or really disagree. I'm trying to take that extra step I'm like, OK, I don't want I disagree with this. Why? Or this makes me mad. Why? That sort of media intermediate or that that step between reading and writing, right? Mm. Because it's that gut, that initial reaction sometimes comes out of anger or a passion for justice or for what's true or whatever, but just a delay, right? Well, do, and just doing it less. So I've just tried to push back less um, mm. on, on stuff I disagree with, whether, whether with Christians or not. That's one thing. I think actually in recent weeks, I've, been on it less time per day or per week i'm gone days without even a week without posting which for me because i tend to be kind of active on there that was relatively unique i read a book a couple weeks ago called maybe a month ago called digital minimalism it's a guy that not a christian i don't think but just he's never had social media um and so he talks about that but he, but he something that stuck with me because i i think that it there are redeemable aspects. There are good things about it. But the, the best advice from that book was people talk about the positives of social media, and there definitely are positives. And I can give you a litany of them from my experience. But you can get those positives in much less time, which then enables you to avoid a lot of the negatives. Mm. Right? Because everything's set up to keep you there. Right? I mean, we know this. They've got experts in psychology, and they pick the color of blue that they think will get people to enter. I mean, just really subtle minute detail mm -hmm. and so just realizing that 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 it's the whole thing is built to get you there to see the next ad right and to spend an hour instead of 10 minutes so i would say that just intentionally long time and so even you know i decided i'm just going to take a week and not say anything on social media and then that was good because then i did I'm like, i don't really miss this right um and so then i dip back in and say a few things and then go away right and that's that's what i think is good What's the, how, what can I, how can I get the good and avoid the bad and then let that, let your values, your, your beliefs guide the time and way you interact rather than just, if you just get into it passively, then values and the structures themselves will guide you. Mm. We don't want that. We don't want that at all. That's for sure. So I don't know. Hopefully that helps a little bit. But. No, I think it does. My wife, <clears throat> my wife's Facebook and uh, Instagram account got hacked. And some weird stuff was being posted. It got hacked to the point where Facebook is not recovering the accounts. I think they've completely deleted the account, which is kind of sad because she had pictures on there and stuff that yeah. says. But I was talking to her the, the other day and 
I made some kind of comment. She's like, yeah, I'm not on social media. I don't miss it. I don't want to be on there. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay, that's safe. That's fine. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I, I again, it goes back to how can we honor God in everything that we're doing? And if I'm going to read something and have an immediate reaction to it, and it's going to be nasty, probably makes sense for me to go to walk, uh, go take a walk and then come back and see if I still want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> talk to Jesus first. Well, Mike, thank you uh, for agreeing to jump on here and talk about this. <clears throat> We're going to try to put as many of the links as possible to the stuff that you've worked on. Um, and for people who are interested in that, then you guys can go and, and buy it. I'm sure Mike will be very happy uh, with that. He does have a book on developing virtue. It's called Being Good. Uh, right? That you call That's off. right. That you call yeah. Um, yeah, with Doug Guyvin. It's actually a co-edited book. So we've got yeah. theologians and philosophers. They each take a particular virtue, Christian virtue, explain what it is. You know, why it's valuable and then at the end of each chapter there's like some suggested ways to intentionally cultivate it um, some of the chapters are, are a little more difficult than others but if you stick with it i think it'll if you're interested in that kind of thing it'll definitely be beneficial yeah so because we we're talking about practical stuff and that book has a number of those things so yeah make sure you guys check that out uh well we've hit our hour thank you for watching um if you've made it here either live or on the replay replay people you're Amazing, um, because you guys actually sit there and watch the replays of this stuff. Uh, if you're not subscribed, make sure that you subscribe. You like it. Again, that's because YouTube algorithms make you more visible when you do that stuff. With that said, God bless you guys, and I will see you guys next time. All right, thanks. Mm -hmm.